Hello, my lovely listeners. I've been away for a whole year. So much has happened and yet feels like nothing has happened. Maybe like a lot of people, I was furloughed and I really did think, wow, all of this free time for my passion projects and I planned a big podcast push. However, my body did not agree and I just totally shut down in terms of productivity. But I think I needed it. But I'm back. This episode was recorded over Zoom in May 2020. I'm a bit ashamed to say, but life very much got in the way. This is a very special episode and it's all about love and hope. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Juliana Wheater. Juliana is a multi-award winning complimentary therapist, a published author, a teacher, a trainer, a public speaker, a fundraiser, a story massage instructor and special yoga practitioner. She is also the founder of Rainbow Kids Trust Therapy and Relaxation, which has been recognized as a learning distinction by the Children's University. Juliana talks to me about her son, Ollie. This episode also contains discussion about domestic abuse, which some may find triggering. Welcome to the Autism and Us podcast. I always start these stories. Um, I'd really like to hear about your life before you had your son, Ollie. Okay, so before I had my children, because I've got four, Ollie's my second of four, but before I had my family, I always knew I wanted a big family. Um, I grew up in Essex, that's where I was born. And it's funny, just as I knew Ollie was different from the start, I always felt there was something different about me too, which which is really interesting. Uh, My teenage years, I was probably horrible and stroppy like most teenagers, but... um, I didn't have the social issues that my son had. Um, I actually, you know, I think because I was quite different, I was quite amusing. So I was never, ever one of the cool kids. And I would write, I would write prolifically all the time, including under the desk in schools and the lessons I didn't like, which included chemistry, by the way. So it just, it it amazes me that I now go and give talks on neuroscience and things like that, because I just think, how did that happen? But it's because I'm interested in it now. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's getting getting that passion, that sunlight from inside someone, which is their superpower and growing that. And also when I was growing up, I have to say, even though I had a really loving family, um, I think at times they struggled to understand aspects of, of me, which may have just been because mm-hmm. I was being a teenager, but I also think it was because I was a little bit different. So anyway, university went really well. I loved that. I really, really enjoyed that. And history in particular for me was like psychology, but with the stories, with the colours, with the people, with their voices, because human beings don't fundamentally change, you know? It's all about how do you survive things? Like now, you know, how do people survive the plague? It's a little bit like that, Mm -hmm. that spirit, that survival, that bringing out the best and the worst in people, how they live their everyday lives, that's what I was interested in. And my family is Italian, so it was really funny because... They're incredibly loving, but incredibly protective, and mm. I just needed to get outside of those rules for a little bit at that point, because there were a few, and they were meant in a loving way, but I, I needed my freedom, and I was desperate to write. That's my song. I say everybody's got a song. Mine is, it's these children, but 
it's also writing. So I thought, oh, I know, being 22 and knowing it all, I'll join magazines and I'll, I'll go on the advertising, then I'll just hop across to editorial. <laughs> and of course, it doesn't look like that. They're all a bit snooty about the advertising people. But they, <laughs> they put up with me at Condé Nast. But I did that for a very short time because it was a different time. How can I put this? Um, because I don't want to make this about me. It's about Ollie and it's about all these kids. But in a nutshell, six months after starting, uh, leaving university, sorry, and starting my job on magazines, I met through my work um, the person... I, I was meant to, well, I married, who, who I married. I was married to him for 20 years, but I married him after, within a year. I didn't really know him. He was nearly a decade older than me. Oh, really? It was an extremely, extremely abusive, manipulative marriage. But obviously, yeah. it's not like that on the first date, because you wouldn't go on the second date, would you? You know, they're very, very clever people. So they spiral around you and undo you slowly mentally emotionally and the physical stuff is the last so when I was pregnant with Ollie the physical stuff had started but because my husband told me he'd had such an awful childhood um mm. I just thought by giving him this wonderful family it would help I thought it was a bit of a superwoman but um even though I'd had a child before Ollie Ollie obviously was really different to James and he was the, the minute he was born I knew he was different it was a feeling I had before he was even born I felt that this was a special one and I don't and I don't know why I'm not claiming to have psychic powers I just knew and um obviously my pregnancy hadn't been the best because I was often left in um unbelievable circumstances with no phone because I didn't have mobile I wasn't allowed one so the landline would be cut off we wouldn't have oil for the heating he'd be away in Indonesia it was a really really hard pregnancy yeah what was it natural birth or it was a natural birth although he did get a bit stuck because I was so tiny mm. and in the end he shot out and honestly no word of a lie I've never forgotten it he made the sound of a massive champagne cork that's the sound <laughs> and made me laugh because you know in that last stage of pregnancy you're practically numb aren't you I'm not being rude but you practically are. yeah so I laughed so the first thing Ollie heard in this world was me laughing mm. and actually that that really wonky sense of humor is a big glue between us he's got it too and we roar to this day we have mm. each other crying Ollie's 22 now so there's very little awareness I think well there's awareness but there's not educational understanding of autism people are aware of a label but 22 years ago I mean there was total ignorance there really really was I knew nothing about it and, and I really hope I don't offend anyone and I'm really really ashamed to say but I'm being honest um, it was this big scary word I, I, I knew nothing about it I, all I knew was Ollie was different he cried an awful lot when he was little Everything was an overwhelm, absolutely everything. Noises, food, sudden changes, just, just all of it. Everything was a huge overwhelm. He needed to be very, very close to me. He was overwhelmed by the world. And as a toddler, 
when he joined a nursery school. And this is no criticism to the nursery because they were wonderful ladies. But I would very often be called in or I'd go and pick Ollie up. So bearing in mind, he's two, three by this point. Mm. I'd be told, oh, you know, Ollie's been made to sit in the corner today. Ollie was made to sit under a table today. So like real humiliation, messages of isolation. And if you think in during play, when a child is meant to be relaxed, you know, if you give a child a message four to six times, that makes a neurological pathway in their brain. So Ollie, right from the off, was getting messages of you're naughty, mm. you don't belong, you're excluded. And it was all because he didn't know how to interact socially. So when I would try to help by getting little friends over or picking him and several friends up and bringing them over, what I particularly noticed about Ollie was that if he didn't want to play with them, he simply wouldn't. He would just go to his room or do what he wanted to do. But if he was in the mood for playing, he would play. It was a curious thing. He'd play alongside them, but not with them. So like so mirroring that, what they were doing almost. Yeah, or just doing his own thing, but next to them, like if, mm. whatever his passion was. So at one point it was dinosaurs. Then he moved on to Lego. So he'd be passionately doing that, but next to his friend, who might not necessarily be doing the same thing, but might be. So if they had action men out, it was action men yeah. there. I'm really sounding ancient. No, because I was going to say, is this like 1999 or? Yes, yeah, 1999, 1990, yeah. uh, 2000, yes. around there. Um, so I noticed that he couldn't play games where he interacted. He couldn't role play. And mm. at the time, he didn't have empathy, although he has buckets and buckets of it now to the point that that actually um, later on in his growing up would contribute to meltdowns actually because he was trying to he can feel people very intensely I do the same I can stand next to people they don't need to say one word and I, I just know mm. and all these things but they wouldn't believe me nobody would believe me and I didn't know what it was because I'd never had a child with that finally got a diagnosis at nine Nine. Nine. And was he going to mainstream school? Yeah. Obviously, mainstream school. And were you getting called in a lot then as well? Yeah, I was called in often about Ollie and he was bullied. He was bullied so much because he did stand out and he would talk about colours around people. He'd talk about all sorts of things people didn't understand, but he thought everybody could see what he could see. And so, and he had really white blonde hair and he was really tall and he just stood out in lots of ways. Mm. So we moved to Exmoor in 2007. Ollie was nine and we got the diagnosis through. It's a three-tier system on Exmoor. So he had to move from a primary school to a first school. And it was actually the headmaster of that school who said to me, there's something different about Ollie. And as a headmaster, I want to know, which I thought was really amazing. Mm. So he, on his advice and backup, um, I insisted with the doctor we be referred. And I had to really fight for that. I had to really fight for that. The doctor really took it personally that I wasn't just blindly accepting his view. Of course. Um, so we went along to see um, Ruth McGregor, who was a doctor, paediatrician um, in Taunton, and she diagnosed Ollie. And I actually didn't tell Ollie anything because I know I'm not trying to be clever and, and I'm not saying this is what everybody should do. It's just what worked for Ollie and I everybody's story is individual to them everybody's dynamics are their own mm. so I would never preach this has just worked for Ollie and I 
Yeah, you can only talk from your experience. That's exactly your experience I, and your story. But I know hundreds of people are going to learn so much from it. So I hope so. I'm, I really hope so. So, and and how was your? Um, did you tell your your partner, or was he? Completely- yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm really ashamed to say this, but I don't believe in. In, in giving any interview unless you're going to be completely honest because otherwise you don't you don't help anyone and and I may upset some people by what I'm going to say we are talking a little while ago though and and I'm really really sorry if I've offended anybody but and I am deeply ashamed of it now but when we got the letter through confirming it I sobbed because my 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 birth family were 250 miles away I was I was a single parent unofficially I really was yeah. in 2007 my ex-husband spent four months with us out of that entire year and we were living in a house we were doing up so it was I mean it just couldn't have been a worse time and what he said to me was he came into the room I remember he was actually here when we got the letter and he said what are you crying about and I just handed him the letter and he threw it into my lap and he said I want you to get this sorted by the time I'm back and he packed a bag and went to Indonesia and he was gone. So you didn't tell him? You, you no, I didn't. tell him at that point. And then when did he, when he went to secondary school, what was that like? Okay, so this, this is where it started to become a bit disastrous. Okay. So I, I just celebrated everything that was Ollie. Um, oh, I must say something which might be helpful. Because we've got this three-tier system here, when he went to the middle school... Um, the social problem still continued and he was still being bullied. However, he had this amazing English teacher who absolutely knew he had a gift for writing, absolutely knew it and fully encouraged it. And he was in gifted and talented, actually, Ollie, for about five or six different subjects out of nine. So they could clearly see he was bright he was different but I had the diagnosis by then so I don't know if this is helpful to your listeners but what I would do is um you know inset days yeah. tra- teach training days Ollie used to call them insect days because I think he thought they were doing pond dipping <laughs> <laughs> anyway I used to call, we still call them insect days and unbeknown to Ollie and he still doesn't know this and none of us ever listened to my interviews back including me because I hate my voice I would go in in August when they'd have that insect day just before the yeah. start of the school year I would find out the name of every single person who was going to look after Ollie during that year dinner ladies um, just anybody whose who's paths Ollie would cross and I would take in a postcard and on that front of the postcard I'd have a photograph of Ollie and on the back the postcard was divided into two and on the left side was a brief description of Ollie and autism and the things he found challenging but then on the right side of the postcard I would write his strengths, his challenge, you know, his strengths, his gifts, his talents, the things that lit him up from the inside, the things that would be useful to do to help him through challenges. So, i.e., with maths, he was really, really couldn't understand maths. So I'd say, well, could you make it about dinosaurs? Could you make it about Lego? But do it for the whole class. So it's not oh, only the autistic kid, by the way, you're going to do it about dinosaurs. Yeah. He couldn't understand multiple instructions. He still can't. So I'd say to the teacher, look, if you broke it down on a whiteboard into simple instructions, it would help people with dyslexia, kids who are going through trauma who haven't slept, kids who are just having a bad day, 
you know, dyslexic kids who have short-term memory, mm. you know, it, and again, it's that message of inclusivity. It's not saying, hey, Ollie, in the corner, you with autism, I'm breaking these instructions down for you. So I wouldn't just go in and expect the school to sort it because I knew the teacher training wasn't there. They hadn't been trained in autism, yes. so unless it was a Senko. So I had to kind of advocate and educate for my child. So middle school were pretty good years. So in a nutshell, to cut a very long story short, Ollie, because he'd been gifted and talented for English, was obviously in top set English when he joined the college at 13. Within a month, they dropped him to bottom set English. They gave him no warning, and Ollie needed warning about sudden changes. He needed warning. He, that mental flexibility, that adaptation to change wasn't there at that point. He still had to learn that. And I was keeping everything as mainstream as possible for Ollie. So I went into school to fight for Ollie. I was meant to be beating with the head of English. And when I went in, there were six or seven teachers and it was such a tiny room. They were all in a, at one side of the room behind desks. And I was in a desk in front of them. And it, I, don't, I don't believe the layout was meant to be intimidating, but it felt it. And I begged and they were saying, he's got autism. He won't be able to line up booklets. He won't be able to tick boxes. He won't be able to infer with reading comprehensions. The creativity side of English at that point had been really kind of made a much lesser part of English GCSE. But the cruelest thing they did, they wouldn't allow him. And that's, that's changed now, which I'm so pleased about. You either had to do a lower paper or a higher paper. And if you didn't do the higher paper, it wiped out your chances of going to university to do English, to do A-level English. And Ollie was getting A's and B's. He would survive school. Mm. The bullying hitched up 10 gears. Mm. That was never dealt with. He would come home and he would absolutely disintegrate. He would punch things. He'd, he'd never hurt any of us. He would punch things. He had no safe place at this point. If, if my husband was at home, which luckily most of the time he wasn't, um, he had no safe place at that point. Um, and his OCD, the way he coped with it was OCD. And he would have routines and patterns that he would do that would make him sob with exhaustion because he couldn't go to bed. Until he'd done them. Yeah, and if, and if he had the wrong thought while he did them, he'd have to repeat the whole process again. Everything would have to be done four times. He had this thing about the number four, he, tapping things, flicking banisters. They seem idiotic. But what it was, I mean, OCD ultimately is, is the ultimate desperate cry for help for somebody who has severe anxiety. Yeah. But when we saw a psychiatrist about it, she said something lovely. She said, actually, only kind people get it because they want the world to be perfect for people. And that really helped on. Yeah. So he wasn't going nuts. So we had to really try and get this in hand because it took over his life so much. He was missing buses. I mean, it was actually life affecting. We had to go on pips at the time. It was that bad. But yeah. again, at the back of my mind, I was thinking, okay, you've got this and it's horrendous and it's heartbreaking to watch you go through all these routines and exhausting yourself and getting wound up and in state. Yeah. But again, you know, if I wasn't here tomorrow, what would we do about that? 
So one morning I woke up, it was about two in the morning. My ex-husband wasn't there. He was away. He was always abroad. There were, there were other families and things. Um, so he was with them and like, giving us some peace. So um, I was on my own with Ollie and I could hear all this crashing and banging around in the bathroom. And I thought, what on earth is going on? Have we been burgled? So I didn't have anything in my room that I could hit anyone with if we were being burgled. And I was <laughs> terrified. Yeah. So I, I had like a perfume bottle. I thought I'll spray it in their face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's all I could think of because I was really tired. And I just thought, what do I do? And I can't get past the bathroom to get to the kitchen to pick up a rolling pill or <laughs> So I remember creeping along to the bathroom and then I could hear Ollie sobbing. And I thought, my God. And I opened the door and there was, he was about six foot two by this point already. There he was, just... Oh my God, I can still remember it, it just a, a crumpled heap on the floor. He had his hands over his ears. He unraveled because that day, that particular day, I remember it very, very clearly. And so does my oldest son, James. And actually to this day, my son, James, and I can't talk about it. We still can't talk about it. The school, even though I'd fought to get Ollie funding, I went to the highest person I possibly could. I was told, oh, she doesn't see people like you. So I took along my little sandwich box and a book. And I said, look, I'm no threat to anyone, but she's got to give me this funding for my son. And I took along all his poetry and she gave me the funding. But it was, it was, we found out that day when Ollie crumpled, finally, that it had been spent illegally elsewhere. So what the school had done wasn't illegal. And this is really important for your listeners to know. Yeah. But it was amazingly legal, but it's not ethical. Absolutely not ethical. Mm -hmm. So to anybody with an HECP who gets funding, you need to make sure you hold the school accountable for that funding. And I remember my oldest son was in the kitchen that morning of, of that, that night where we thought we were being burgled. We, we were in the kitchen and Ollie came in and Ollie being Ollie instantly knew something was dreadfully wrong. And he went, what? one of you has to tell me and I said Ollie I don't know how mm. and um I remember James just turning and putting the kettle on to make Ollie a sweet tea and those two are really close mm. and um oh and I had to tell Ollie this is what the school have done so not only had they wiped his present they had absolutely destroyed his future yeah. and they had broken him and and people use that word broken so lightly you can feel broken but you might not actually be but my son was yeah. so that night he went up to his room and he was deathly quiet and he went up the stairs one at a time and they were like dead steps and I, he was as white as a sheep and James looked at me and he said mum this is this is dreadfully wrong I said I know and as I started I remember James and I just sprinting up the stairs we just knew and as I've got goose pimples telling you this, yeah. I'll never, ever forget it for as long as I live. When we went into Ollie's room, we heard the sound of smashing glass. And my son, he's so nonviolent. He's so, so gentle, yeah. so emotional, so soft. He's a real gentle giant. He was on the floor sobbing, but it was like an animal. It was like sounded like a seal or a donkey it was guttural it was primal yeah, yeah. he was sobbing he'd punched his entire window out mm. he was bleeding all down his elbows and onto the floor mm. 
and he just looked at me and in between the sobbing because he couldn't get the sentence out all at once he said mum I'm disabled aren't I I'm broken and I remember getting on the floor with him mm. grabbing his face in my hands and I was saying to him look at me just look at me Ollie and I was trying so hard not it chokes me up I was trying so hard not to cry yeah. And I just held his face in my hands and I said, you are not disabled. Don't you ever say that word to me again. And don't ever use it about yourself. You are differently abled. You are not disabled. You've got your writing and we are going to get you through this. He'd unraveled like a ball of wool. Yeah. Yeah. In that school, I'm afraid, because of a lack of understanding. And I'm not blaming the teachers. They have their training from the government. So, you know, how much of that is spent on mental health? How much of that is spent on autism? You know, what's got to change is at the top. The teachers are like filling in the sandwich, getting kicked by everyone. So actually, if it wasn't for my ex-husband, and I do thank him for this, I wouldn't have been tenacious. I wouldn't have been as industrious. Mm. I'd never have had the confidence in a million years to set up a business or speak for people. So did Ollie do his GCSEs at that school? Yeah, this is where it gets really good. Right. So (laughs) I never once got angry with the school. I always, I was like water on a stone. I just dripped away, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) made that dent. So, um, at this point, after Ollie had that massive meltdown in the bathroom, because I knew my level, of it, I knew I had to then start studying neuroscience. I had to, I had to start. I basically, poor old Ollie, I've had to learn on the job. I've had to learn about autism and advocate and educate. I've had to learn about mental health, neuroscience. I've done all of these things because of the journey with my son. I've taken those life cards and made them positive for us and and hopefully others you know really hopefully that too because it's just become about so much more than Ollie Uh, it's there's so many kids out there who need us you know who who aren't being seen who aren't being heard but at this point I didn't have the knowledge that I have now so I engaged the help of a wonderful wonderful man called Dr Clive North and again he was just life-changing for us but Ollie was so ill that he couldn't actually go into the uh, mental outpatients unit at the hospital. And it's really brave of him to allow me to tell his story. Um, And I really, I really am grateful for that. So Dr. North would come to our home during the period where Ollie was building up to GCSEs because he was absolutely massively losing it. And the OCD was getting unbearable. Mm. I was a single parent officially by this point, although I'd been one for years unofficially. We were dealing with so much, including the start of police investigation. So it was a lot to deal with. Um, So I, Dr. North would come here. Um, I went into the school and this is another really important tip for your listeners. Um, because I had to do lots of excavating, lots of looking around, this is A to B thing again. Ollie and I, we had to go through all the letters to get to B. You know, we have to go in a big loop. So I went in to see the school and the exams officer was absolutely lovely. He agreed the system was wrong and both him and um, the um, art team were fantastic for Ollie during this period. So I went to see the, um, the chief of exams and I said to him, 
I've done a lot of excavating and what isn't put out there for parents is that children actually are allowed to do their exams wherever they want. It can even be in a public place, a library, a beach, somewhere where they feel comfortable and relaxed so that the best results can be got out of them for the exam. So it's a win-win situation. The child gets really good results and the school can pick up all the credit. So, you know, it's just yeah. great. Because at first they'd said to me, no, 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 this isn't possible. And I said, it actually legally is. Wow. I looked into this. It's legal. An invigilator needs to be there. I wasn't allowed to be there. Um, and another person, there have to be two people there, an examinations officer, I can't remember their title, but two people had to be there. And at this point, um, we've got an old tea room next to our home. And bit by bit by bit, over two and a half years, three years, the children and I did it up. I put all my money for my massage in schools into that. So kids who couldn't fit on my list at school or were too embarrassed to could see me there. Mm -hmm. And I could run for workshops, things like that. So I said to the school, could Ollie do his um, exams from there? So they came and there was about four of them, six of them. I can't remember how many now. Teachers came with big um, clipboards, that's the word, and they were ticking off all the things. And they agreed that Ollie would be able to do his exams in my therapy chalet. So that was really good. So I'd been told he'd get no more than two GCSEs at this point. So I thought, we'll see about that because I know no one goes from being in all those gifted and talented sets to only being able to achieve two GCSEs. And he's still seeing the doctor at the, at the run-up. All doing this. Yes. So Dr. Clyde North was coming weekly and he offered Ollie Prozac and that's fine. And actually medication has its place. I wouldn't dream of telling anybody not to take it. And I'm not allowed. It would be illegal. I'm not a doctor. But I'm just saying mine and Ollie's story. So we didn't want that. So I was at this point massaging Ollie every single night. He was like a great big long baguette, lied out on his bed. (laughs) And there's little me. It took blooming ages. I've got one more tip. Kids with dyslexia automatically get 25% extra time. I went to my doctor countless times and he would not listen to me. He would not listen to me. He said, There's Ollie's got autism. I'm not giving him extra time. So I took Senko with me, who was lovely. She came with me. She didn't actually say all that much, but it was good to have her support there. And at that point, the doctor did try and listen a little bit. And I remember saying to him, because this was true at the time, because I've looked it up, I was I was like a little archaeologist, like this little maternal mole digging away to find information, you know. And he the doctor started drawing a pit of stick men playing ping pong on this yellow post-it pad on the desk, saying, Now this is Ollie, this is you, and these are the exams on the net. And I just I just said to him, I don't mean to be rude. Please can I interrupt? I said I respect you and I do and I really 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 don't want you to think I don't I wouldn't be here if I didn't I value what you have to say and I value your training I haven't trained for seven years being a doctor but out of seven years training you've had one and a half days of that training on mental health because that was the statistic at the time and I said how many hours out of that day and a half did you train on autism might change now but that's what it was then Mm -hmm. and he just looked a bit stumped and I said let me tell you about my training I said it's it's 16 years I've never had a day off sick 
I've never been allowed a holiday. And not only do I have it 24 hours a day, but in the day, when I'm not with my son, I'm working with other children who have autism and other different abilities. I'm continually going on courses to widen that knowledge. You mm. can't ignore me. You know, I want us to work together. I'm not saying I know more than you, but please don't patronize me with a stick man drawing. Yeah. I wasn't cross. Well, I was cross, but I was trying not to show it because I wanted to keep him on board. Yeah. So do you know what he did? He sat down. He went, OK, I'll write you a letter. So I was really thrilled. And when I got home, I opened that letter and he had given Ollie, get ready for this, seven minutes extra time for his exams. So I'd gone through all that. I left the surgery. I left oh, me. Sorry to swear. <laughs> uh, uh, well, there were a million swear words going in my head. I see things in colours. My head was blue. Yeah. In fact, I think the whole body was blue at that point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so what I did, and this is another tip for your listeners, because I, I really want to help people. No, I went to see the exams officer who was lovely, Chris Lund. He was lovely. And I said to him, look, we've got this in place for Ollie to do his exams in the chalet. Is there any chance at all? Yeah, you know, when the clock's ticking, he's got seven minutes extra time. But I said, what about if he hits overwhelm? What about if he needs to just go and get some fresh air? Because there's no way he's going to be able to do a maths exam in two hours. Or go for a movement break or something. Or just Yeah. yeah. I said, what is wrong with you stopping that clock, walking with him around my garden to make sure he hasn't written anything on his arms or he's checking anything? Mm. There's no internet anywhere in the garden or in the chalet. He won't have his phone. He doesn't cheat because he can't lie. That's one really good thing. I said, but if you have somebody who could just walk around the garden with him, let him breathe, he could then go back and you start the clock again. And he agreed. So that's how we got around it. So Ollie took four hours and seven minutes to do his maths exam instead of two hours and seven minutes. You know, and this is how we did it. And to cut a really long story short, Ollie, get ready for this, straight out, got 10 A to C GCSEs. Wow. This is the boy who was only meant to get two. Mm. He had to resit maths. So he took another four hours and seven minutes mm. or something like that. And he got that. He got the C in that. So he's got 11 GCSEs. Wow. However, we were now left at this point where he couldn't do English, couldn't do English language, English literature, because they'd removed English literature from him. Because if you, at, at that point, if you could only do the lower paper, you it automatically had English literature removed and words were his world, books were his friends. They'd removed his world. He couldn't do that as a GCSE. He wasn't even allowed to do English literature. He could only do the lower paper GCSE. They've changed it now. It's a yeah. number system. And so everybody gets a fair chance. But back then it wasn't like that. So he had English literature removed, which he adored. Mm. I've never heard anyone cry like that. So he'd got his C in English, which was the highest he could get. Mm. I even had a lovely dis um, uh, teacher of special needs who wrote into the school with papers she'd done with Ollie, GCSE papers, where privately in my house, where he'd got A's and B's to say he should be doing the higher English and the school dismissed it out of hand. They didn't, wouldn't even reply to me. Mm. They just dismissed it. So here we were at A level. What was Ollie going to do? You know, and he loved books he was still reading voraciously oh I forgot to tell you something really really good oh, yeah. I wrote 
to every, I was like a stalker. I would sit up till three, four in the morning, finding every author's agency address. Um, I wrote to, goodness me, so many authors. And to this day, I have two box files full. Every single author, I've got goose pimples, every single author replied. And Michael Morpurgo actually wrote, your mother's letter and your poem made me and my wife cry. You are a writer already, Oliver. I was not writing like you at 13 years old. Mm. So we laminated that. Molly kept it in his school bag. So all these authors had written to Ollie. Oh, and I'd take him to literary festivals. He'd stand up and, and read his poetry out at all these literary festivals while we were going through his exams because I wanted him to know he still had his song. He still had his gift. He still had writing. There was nothing else I could do. So here we are at A-levels. So I said to Ollie, look, let's look at the options. If you did media, okay, it's technology, which you're not mad on, but it is the way forward as I'm now learning. I'm a bit stuffed, but I'm learning. It's it's storytelling, storytelling, isn't it? So that's what he's good at. Yeah, but look at us. We're on Zoom. See? I I learned. Anyway, so Ollie, for his A-levels, did media, art, and drama. He got a stars a's and b's for his a level it was i had to go in and get the results i'll never forget the day it was boiling boiling hot i drove there and ollie i could see ollie's jaw going which he he kind of chews his jaw when he's nervous Mm. and he said to me mum you've got to go in and i thought my god this boy's entire life lies in this envelope and when his exams were marked he was just a number he wasn't Ollie with autism or any special abilities. It's just a number, candidate number. So I thought, oh, my God, my heart was thumping. I actually could have, could have been sick. So I went in, I picked up the envelope, and I took it to the car, and I thought, I'm not looking in it. I'm not looking in it. So I sat next to Ollie, and I handed it to him, and it was like the longest seconds of our lives. And he opened it, and he just went, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I thought, well, what does that mean? and he started getting out of the car and I went Ollie what's the matter what's the matter he said mum because my even though I'm only little my my cuddles are really really fierce I've lifted him up I don't know where the strength comes from it's hilarious when I get really excitable I can lift quite large things including my son (laughs) so he started backing out of the car and he said you're not going to believe it and I said what and he just handed me the letter and he started running I said where are you going he said you're going to hurt me I said I am and there was a roundabout in the middle of me where you drive round to park and he was running on there and I caught up with him and I launched and I knocked him flat on the floor <laughs> and I just hugged him in the middle of this roundabout. Just in the middle of it, it was just so funny. It's almost like the accumulation of all of that work. Yeah, that heartbreak. Pain and everything was just in that envelope. Yeah, it was unbelievable. We were both crying. We were, and it takes a lot to make me cry. I taught myself not to cry yeah. and we were both crying. And I went to Morrison's and I remember saying, we're going to buy all the stuff you need. And I was down like the saucepan aisle and I was grabbing people. I was going, this is my son. He's going to university. And all these people were laughing in the queue. I was telling everyone I could. I was like the worst embarrassing mother ever. So and I was laughing his head off. Oh, it was so funny. And since then, this is unbelievable. Bearing in mind, this boy had never even had a sleepover. 
Yeah. I then had to take him to university. Oh, this is a really good thing for your listeners to know. They have this thing called widening and participation. And again, they don't make, you have to look up for these things. You're not freely told it. Yeah. But I never stop. I've got this little tired, very tired shovel where I have to keep digging for information all the time. <laughs> but I found out about this thing called widening participation. And if you have a child, even if they've gone through lots of trauma or they're on PIPs, they have PTSD, ADHD, whatever it is, you get in touch with them, widening and participation, and your child can go to university a week earlier than everybody else. Okay. They run workshops on budgeting, cooking, life at university, getting them used to the layout of the university, which buses go where, they take them in on sightseeing tours into town. So Ollie had this amazing sightseeing tour on the top of a bus around Bath, because that's where he went. It was his first choice university. He was accepted unconditionally. What was he studying? He did um, creative writing because he didn't have the English, but he had the media. And and writing is what he loves. Creative writing. And he gets to study loads of poets and loads of authors. So he's got all that literature learning back again Mm. and publishing. So he learned that too. And when, when he left me that night, that first night, I'd unpacked his room and I was like a right Italian mama. He had to guide me into the parking space because you couldn't see out the back window. I think I've got, it was like he was going on tour in the army and I had to pack, you know, just everything (laughs) I could think of. It was so embarrassing because everyone got out with a few carrier bags and there's us, you know, oh my God. Anyway, so he had to go to the student union that night, that very first night at university for a meeting with everybody there. And we thought we'd be like, you know, with big signs on our head saying autism family, but there were loads. There were literally a couple of hundred students. So, you know, it wasn't, again, it wasn't like, oh, here are the ones who don't fit in. It was Mm. nothing like that. Mm. It was all about fitting them in. And it was all led by students. So Ollie had what was called a peer mentor, which was somebody he could go and speak to at any point who'd also been through widening and participation. Ollie did the same in his second and third year. He then wanted to do it for others. But on that first night when I left him, he said to me, Mum, it's five o'clock. I've got to go to this meeting. So I said, shall I come with you, Ollie? He went, Mum, I'm leaving you at the car. He said it was the worst goodbye he's had in his life. Mm. He said, don't look back, mum. Just don't look back. And I'm not looking back. He said, we'll just say goodbye. I mean, it makes me so emotional. I'm so coming yeah. And I remember I just gave him the biggest, biggest hug. And I promised not to look at him. And I was sobbing all the way to the car, just oh. silently. And he said he, he couldn't sleep. He cried himself to sleep. But he did it. He did it. Yeah. And he was personally invited by Tim Leaday, his mentor at Bath, to do a master's. So by September, he will be more qualified than the teachers who told him he would never achieve. How amazing is Uh, he? Amazing. And he took part in Autism's Got Talent. And, you know, that was more emotional for me than his graduation because I thought, there's my boy. I've advocated for him all his life and now there he is advocating for himself and for others and speaking to an audience with all sorts of people from celebrities to just normal people like me, 
you know, reading his poetry at 22, I would have killed for an opportunity like that because I love writing. But, but there he was, my son doing that. And do you know what? I think it was the proudest moment of my life. Your story is just like so inspirational and I'm so proud of you both, especially oh, no, Ollie. No, it's, it's Ollie. No, it's, he's touched so many people. And the last thing I wanted to um, talk to you about is if you could just explain quickly what your business is and what you sort of do now in terms of like your career as an advocate. Okay. I, it's, I feel weird even calling it a business. I mean, obviously it has to be because I have to survive in this world. But it's... um. I do lots of therapies with children because not everybody wants touch. So I've trained in various therapies, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, um, all different touch therapies, you know, because to me, every child has an access point. And what I mean by that is you build up that trust and they will let you in. Mm -hmm. I've never to date once given up on any child. So I I do that. I do a lot in schools, a lot in special schools. I train teachers, staff, charities, organizations, but I do lots for free. So I do lots of talks for free. Not about me, but about, in fact, I've written a book about um, massage with special needs, which I hate that title, but I had to call it that. And, you know, the last two times I've done talks, I've forgotten to take my book because to me it's about it's about the kids. It's their voices. It's about their abilities, their different abilities, not disabilities. Mm. We all have challenges, every single person on this planet. And if you put 100 people in a room, every single one of those 100 people will be the best at something. Oh, and I write prolifically blogs, magazine articles, and a lot of that I do for free. So there's not a lot of sleep going on in this little body. And do you have your, do you have a therapy room that you see people in or an office? Yes, I do as well. Yes, my my therapy chalet, which is on Exmoor. But I'll travel to train, I'll travel to see people. I'll go to the moon if I have to for these children, and I will. And all these challenges, you know, they're doorways. They are doorways. And I've always said to my children, when we're in our blackest times, you've got to imagine it's like being in a cocoon and we are going to burst out and we are going to fly and we are. And, you know, actually in all the training, and I'm not just saying this, in all the training, all the textbooks, degrees, diplomas, whatever you like that I've done, and I'm not dismissing any of that because all of that has its place. I swear my biggest, biggest teachers have been the children. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maisie. Autism is a spectrum condition. All autistic people share certain difficulties, but being autistic will affect them in different ways. Some autistic people also have learning disabilities, mental health issues, or other conditions, meaning people need different levels of support. All people on the autism spectrum learn and develop. With the right sort of support, all can be helped to live a more fulfilling life of their own choosing. To learn more about autism, you can visit the National Autistic Society website on autism.org.uk. This podcast was created, written and edit produced by me, Maisie Clater. And the music that you hear in this podcast was written and produced by Kit Milsom, who also records and edits the show. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, maybe even write a little review and rate us.